This is the Saddler's Post, conversations on horses, leather trade, and the art of saddlery, with our host, Christian Loeb. My guest today on the Saddler's Post is Brett Viberg, a bootmaker located in British Columbia with a family tradition of bootmaking dating back to the late 1800s. Brett, welcome to the Saddler's Post. Thank you for having me. So when I first thought of having you on as a guest, I immediately wanted to talk about the pivot in a business sense that your family would have had to have done um, over years of, you know, two world wars, wars, um, depression, uh, immigration to Canada, economic downturns, and, you know, the advent of fast fashion. Um, I really, I know that you've been paying attention to your family history can you can we start there and and just speak about that sure yeah what um do you want me to start sort of at the beginning or what yeah how how do you have it laid out yeah just start from the beginning a little bit of a story of um you know from a manufacturing um and and how you how it's evolved to today i think we just you know, quickly come to that, and then we can talk about, you know, how you're navigating the business world today. Sure. Okay. Um, so the the brand and the business itself is uh, 90, man, nine, I'm going to say 90, 92 years old. So 1931, yeah, 92. Um, started by my grandpa, and then the actual tradition of shoemaking goes back to my great, great grandpa back in Sweden. And, um, I, so that, that initial person, I can't actually, you know, track much in terms of the, the lineage of it. My great grandpa, I can, um, because he's the one that immigrated here to Canada with my grandpa back in 1907. So, um, yeah, basically they were doing, uh, you know, a mix of shoe and, you know, horse saddlery and harnesses and stuff like that for the working class, uh, primarily, uh, at least as far as I know, in the early 1900s in Canada, it was for the farmers and all of those laborers. And I think based upon the geographic location of where they were in Sweden, it would be the same thing. So it's always sort of... Um, more rugged or industrial type footwear rather than uh you know for for somebody that's in the uh in a city making wearing a suit or something like that yeah so the the history would have been literally you know you know the the working man wanting quality footwear but also farmers like you mentioned harness and and uh the horse side of things it basically would have been the same customer and then I would imagine that, you know, mechanization, you know, as horses were slowly le- leaving the farming industry um, and and tractors are starting to come in. And, you know, that's where I'm talking about the pivot is to focus. I mean, imagine if you had a focus on saddlery uh, versus uh, boot making, you know, so you 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 made a decision um, you know, your family historically said, okay, we're going to focus on the, on the boot business. Was that more geographical? Was it 
economics? What was what do you think was the reason? Yeah, I mean, I think it was a bit of both. I mean, geographically, you know, for, for the brand itself and just like, let's say for the establishment of being in Canada was in the farming communities of Saskatchewan. And um, so, I, you know, that's just geographically there. And then I think because obviously there was still a skill set to do saddles and um, harnesses and stuff like that, it just sort of made sense to to offer the same customer something else and um you know so that you know the company started in 1931 which is you know depression era so i think the way that it went isn't you know as as things sort of downturned from you know the 1920s into the 30s my grandpa who was working with his dad at the time um decided to go out on his own and um that's when he sort of really established himself as a bootmaker rather than sort of this multi craftsman doing harnesses and, and other leather work aside from footwear just just to sort of survive yeah um it's interesting you can imagine we, we you know when we start thinking of history you don't think of innovation but i you it is exactly kind of a uh, young man branching out on his own, putting his stamp on things and saying, no, this is, I am a bootmaker. And probably, um, I talk about this a lot w- with um, value. Um, I, I would expect that people who were very comfortable buying leather goods, I imagine a, a discerning buyer of boots in 1930 could probably quickly assess are these going to stand up are they going to last me six months a year longer are they worth repairing so it would have been a quite a demanding customer i would imagine yeah i think that um you know just just in that time period i think that you know everybody's looking at the value proposition and you know making sure that it's going to last a lifetime also just in terms of um being able to repair it and you know just versus you know what we have now is disposable um so i think the idea of just you know how many times can i fix it and is it easy to fix or do i have to bring it back to you and you know i think there's a lot of a lot of uh questions that would have came up that you wouldn't necessarily see today um you know especially just like can you can it be done in the field is it a field repair versus something that has to go back to the manufacturer yeah, I mean, imagine if you're um, quite a ways from town, if you want to think of that as uh, to come in just to have a, a boot repaired and then be without it um, would not have been a selling point. You would want something that people could literally take into their own hands. Um, and again, thinking of probably an industrious society where repairing something themselves on the farm would not be foreign. I mean, you were probably um, capable of doing many, many tasks. Yeah, for sure. I think, you know, I think it's a matter of um, if a product is made to last, um, you know, regardless of the, the aesthetic beauty of it, if it's still, you know, authentically made, if you know, you can do a field repair to it and then, you know, once you are back in the town where the manufacturer is, they can 
you know, take it apart and make it beautiful again. But I think the idea is that there's a utilitarian aspect to it that um, doesn't necessarily exist today, but back in, in those days, it definitely did. And um, it was almost, I, you know, I think it was something that the people were just sort of, that that idea was ingrained into them, which it's just not today. Yeah. So again, that brings me from a business point of view, pivoting through, um, you know, fashion where, uh, you know, there's certain boot companies that make their boots to look like hiking boots or work boots, but they're clearly for fashion. Um, but you've, you've kind of doubled down on, no, no, we make things to an incredibly high standard and it's, it is fashionable, but there's, it's not, um, a wear it for a season and forget about it. Like you've, 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 it seems like you've doubled down on, you know, we make, uh, some of the best boots in the world. Yeah. I mean, we, we try, but, uh, you know, there's, there's always limitations of what you can do, but I, you know, I, I, for, I think what the advantage that, you know, that I have that was handed to me is just that we first and foremost are, and were, uh, you know, I guess not are, but we were a, you know, industrial footwear based manufacturer. And so everything that we make currently is still made with the same, you know, the same DNA as, as what it was back then, maybe even more, maybe even more authentic now than it was back then, because I, I'm trying to sort of preserve different techniques and stuff and just different materials and things that we didn't do initially, I've sort of put back into the product to make it kind of um, as authentic as I can make it for a product that would be equivalently made in, you know, the 1930s or 1920s when everything was natural and, you know, made to last. Yeah. I would imagine that the more environmentally um, aware we become as consumers, that that certainly would appeal to maybe customers that are actually switched on and paying attention going hey this actually is i'm not going to say environmentally friendly but things that are built to last you know it's it's like the the washing machine thing right you know your first washing machine our parents would have bought would have lasted 30 35 years and the subsequent washing machines last um five to seven years is a lifespan now of uh, a major appliance so you know, but you, you're, you've not gone that trend. You've actually, when I say you double down, you're like literally saying, no, 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 we're actually building things that, um, are, you know, worth repairing are going to last and using leathers that quite frankly look better with time. So it's, it's kind of interesting to me that, you know, it's, not the most economical way to produce something i'm sure but i think the customers who kind of understand that value proposition are are probably the ones who get what you're doing almost immediately 
Yeah, I mean, you know, the the product's not for everyone. It's, you know, the design, the last, you know, not not that there's really much in the way of a design. You know, it's like the to invent a, a classic shoe again doesn't exist. You know, unless it's like a knitted a knitted shoe or something. But um, yeah, I mean, I, you know, the the goal is to just sort of for me anyways, because we, we have this, you know, being born into manufacturing, it's, it's just like, sort of, I've got this, I have the ability to have sort of like a playground. And if, if I can add in vintage machinery and different materials that um, make it, from my perspective, a better value proposition, yeah. um, then, then I'll do that. But, you know, one of the issues with making something, um, with more natural material or just, you know, more authentically made from a uh, standpoint of looking at what vintage, how vintage would be made, vintage shoes and, you know, vintage garments and this and that, is that people want this idea of a vintage garment or shoe, but they don't want to be educated to take care of it the way that they would have taken care of it back in that time period. So if you have something that's all leather and it gets wet, you know, it can lose its shape just because that's what happens. But, you know, if they don't understand that, then they can totally deform the shape of it just because they're used to wearing stuff that has more plastic in it. So yeah. it's, it's kind of interesting. There's, there's a bit of a challenge to it. Um, and, you know, and quite frankly, not everybody should sort of be nerdy about it. So I, I understand why some people don't like it. You know, it's just, because it, it comes with, uh, you know, it needs to come with more like a warning that, you know, the product's great. It looks, you know, you, you love the product, but also you need to take care of it. And by taking care of it, it can last, you know, 15 years or more, yeah. you know, because the construction techniques that we use are meant for, you know, outdoor use, you know, climbing a tree or whatever. And so when you apply that to wearing it casually in a city, you will never wear it out. I mean, it's impossible, you know. Yeah. But it's also, I just when you said about taking care of it or maintaining shape, I think there'll be certain generations or, of people out there who can instantly have the image of, you know, maybe a grandparents um, would own shoe trees, right? Like your your quality shoes were put away with shoe trees in, and that would have been basically to maintain that shape um, while they're not being worn, correct? Yeah, it, it, it yeah, it, it airs it out. It, it lets it dry and, and reform to the shape that it was, you know. I mean, the advantage of all natural is that it does mold to your foot, but it does get wet and perspiration and you need to air it out. So, you know, but it it's just people think that it takes time or, you know, there's a, there's a million reasons why people don't do it. And, you know, cost could be one of them, but... I think that it's just, um, you know, it's uh, it's probably, you know, the, the educational component of, of being a maker of something is in, in this day and age is really one of the hardest things to sort of speak to because it's not, it's not necessarily something that you can do digitally. It's really a touch and feel and you need to sort of understand it with your own eyes. It's, it's very hard to, to, um, gain permission to to get somebody's attention long enough to sort of offer this education you know i think that's the challenge yeah 
because honestly, it would seem that I mean manufacturing anything is is difficult, but it's not putting a man on the moon. <laughs> but getting someone's attention in this day and age and in, in in this world of um, you 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 know YouTube experts. Um, you know, the, like I, I do a ton of research in my own industry and I'm always looking at who's saying what. And it's very important, it seems, that people perceive and sell themselves as experts, even though they have no background, they have no training, they have no formal education in the subject that they're talking about. They just happen to be passionate about it, um, which is fantastic, but um, they don't put any disclaimer when they're doing this they they just start speaking and spreading this and if they happen to have you know 60,000 followers for some reason on on their socials then um, they're reaching a, a big amount of people with maybe not the best or most accurate information and it's you know we all have biases but the the fact is that People are basing it on on probably a lot of biases that they have about what they feel is value or what they feel is quality. So, yeah. I imagine you have I mean, your work cut out for you. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I just imagine it's it it is the hardest part of your business is education. Yeah, I mean, you know, for for us, it's really, um, I mean, I, you know, part of me just hope that somebody that I had working for me could do it rather than me being the voice of it. But the truth of the matter is, you know, all this information is in my head and it's, you know, family. And I just, if I don't make the time to um, share the story and, and process and educate, um, you know, from, from directly from a manufacturer, then you might have a bit of a bit of misinformation. Um, and I think that's the issue now is you've got a lot of people making stuff that, they're too busy involved in the business of, of, you know, manufacturing and all the other, you know, you know, HR and I mean, there's a million things going on. So the last thing that these people want to do is just, um, you know, put, put, uh, you know, not the truth out there, but just share their story and their process and sort of try to educate people on, um, what it is that they're making and, and, you know, how is it different and, you know, what, what can it do for you and, you know, this kind of stuff. Yeah. It's, it's, um, it's something that, you know, I, I, I've been to a lot of factories over the last few years, you know, during COVID and then, and then after COVID. Um, and, you know, a lot of like private label OEM factories that produce for a lot of people. And that's really the sort of, you know, these factories are, family generational you know shoe factories but they don't actually have a voice to to talk about the, you know their own legacy because they're just making for other people and i find it you know sort of heartbreaking because you know they can't actually share their story and what they're proud of because they're too busy making it and other people are um you know keeping them in business and giving them a life and all that other stuff but um you know they're just it's it's interesting so i you know everybody that i visit now i try to understand you know what they wish they could do that they can't do and sort of try to empower them in a way that you know encourage them to try to do their own brand so that it gives them some sort of 
outlet to share their, their own story because I, I think it's important, especially if you want to have these these traditions keep going and, and stuff. You need to have, um, you know, there's no there's no point having everything in a silo. It, it needs to be, you know, shared. So, I agree. I, I've met saddle makers that have worked in, um, you know, the the private label industry, and you'll never know their name. Um, and it's not that, you know, they're in it. You know, they're providing for their family and everything. But you're exactly right that somebody else is putting their name on it and marketing themselves as makers or manufacturers but what they really are is marketers and retailers but the terminology they use is like oh i i i made this client a saddle or boots or something and it's they don't know they're doing it but they're they're being disrespectful by not giving the manufacturer or the maker or the craftsperson the credit. Um, you know, it's they play a vital role in finding the customer and marketing to them. But it's it's frustrating to hear, you know, as a tradesperson myself, to to hear people using language or basically letting clients pers- willingly misunderstand who actually made it um, because it it sounds better. And I, I I really find that fascinating that you're doing that. It's you know, and I think it speaks to your passion of not just your brand but the industry. Yeah, I mean, you know, yeah, it's like every one of these, you know, even if there were just even if there are factories that had a brand, I mean, everybody's got their own customer base and their own design and their own, you know, I mean, it, so there's no like there's no competition. If, but, you know, it seems to be that people want to think there is some sort of competitive thing. But, I mean, everybody's got their own thing going on. And so why not just sort of if you can be helpful and inspire somebody, um, you know, I mean, it's not uh, there's more than enough to go around for everyone. And, you know, uh, you know, we're, we're like low, 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 low volume shoes and boots, you know, so um I don't, I don't want a big market share, but even in the guys that are making, you know, hundreds of thousands of pairs a year, um, you know, they're, they're scaling at these huge rates. And, you know, I don't think that, uh, you know, helping somebody out is not going to, uh, is going to do anything to their business. So. No, I, I try to live my business life that way where I'm always, you know, directing people or, you know, giving someone props because it's not only, I think, encourages, you know, my big concern, and I don't know if you feel this way, but that, you know, you can speak to it directly how you came into the industry, but um, who's coming in behind? Like, what would a, a young person today think, well, wait a minute, um, it, you know, to manufacture something, for no you know part of it is ego driven like you you know it's got your name on it and you know to me that's important that you know that like saddle makers always have that the maker's mark right it's mm-hmm. you know it's it's pretty clear who made it um but 
it's it's I just feel it's important that you're keeping the industry healthy and positive and that young people are you know thinking about like yeah maybe I'll go to art college but the end goal is to come out and design shoes or boots or jackets or saddles or whatever it is I I think it's you know and without fear that you know someone's gonna be successful means I won't be you know I I strongly agree that yeah someone who's a a Viberg fan or supportive of you um would would still continue to be that way yeah and you know the the main thing is like it's just it well the the advantage that we have is we're a tiny business and so you know i don't need a lot of customers to you know to, to fill the factory which is you know because it's too difficult to make you know it's the shoe industry is complex anyways and in canada it's even more difficult and then you know to be in victoria on an island is even more difficult and so you know the advantage is like fortunately we're 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 busy and you know business is good and you know we're very lucky to have that but it it allows you know it allows me to sort of say to people look that my product might not be for everyone but at least let me try to educate you or help you or do something even if it's not the point for you to buy my stuff, but it just changes your perspective on something long-term. Um, I, I think that's almost as, as important because, um, you know, there needs to be an understanding of, of sort of like, you know, if we look at sort of the society and, and manufacturing in general, it's, it's, we've clearly gone away from that, but at some point, you know, people still have to make stuff and do stuff. And that's just fundamentally how, how things were created. And yeah. so it can't fully move to a digital age unless you literally get rid of all your manufacturing and you allow it to be done, you know, third world somewhere else, which is also a solution and, and, and not a solution, but it's also just not a bad idea, but it, for me, you know, just having this legacy of a business given to me and sort of taking that on, I, I might as well sort of do something with it. And, you know, other than, you know, pr you know, adding product lines and all that other stuff, which yeah, is just that that's the fun part, you know? Yeah. Cause you, your generation, you could have easily come in with a vision of saying, look, the Viberg name is, uh, stands for something. We're going to market that but we're getting out of manufacturing. What we're going to be is warehousing, distribution, marketing, logistics, um, and we're going to get, you know, space on the shelf at, you know, every high-end retailer in uh, North America or globally or whatever. And really fascinating that you didn't go that route. So you know that modernization doesn't mean not doing things the traditional way it actually just means you know best practices and you know identifying who you're marketing to you know i think that's probably the again the pivot or the um 
fresh thinking that a, a younger person coming into the industry, like as you came in, I'm sure you probably saw lots of opportunities and had to really be careful because you're, you've been handed almost a, not handed, but you, you've taken over a legacy or, you know, of, of a lot of tradition there. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think that, um, just going back to the point of, of like the idea of, you know, just importing and, and all that kind of stuff, you know, it, if you, if you grow up in a manufacturing setting and, and it's sort of like these people are, you know, an extension of your family. And, you know, I, I think that it, it, you have responsibility just ingrained into you because you have these, these craftspeople working for you that, that, um, you know, if you move stuff offshore, they, you know, they probably don't have a job and obviously they, they'll survive because, you know, everybody adapts. But um, I think there's that driving factor. Um, and then, you know, pre previously, you know, my dad was really trying to get um, a import imported product for safety footwear that could be competitive in the Canadian market. Um, and that was really something that he and even to this day is very passionate about trying to do which is sort of what you're saying you know just pull it just you're just a different perspective you know um but for me it's just building product and making our manufacturing relevant for today and trying to um incorporate a succession plan around our manufacturing which is something that I'm having to do now, um, which, which wasn't there. And so there's, there's a huge amount of things that are sort of on my plate in terms of responsibility to keeping things going forward because they weren't there, you know, when it, when it sort of came to me. So, um, but yeah, you know, the option of the dream of just having a brand and not having to make stuff. I mean, obviously it's, it's a, in hindsight, it's a great, it's a great idea because that's yeah. what everybody does. <laughs> Who doesn't want it? The 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 Amazon model, right? It's uh, a no touch, no touch product. Yeah. You just uh, you know check your account once a week, I guess, and uh, <laughs> you know see. Yeah. I mean, unfortunately, that's just not how I'm built. You know, and yeah. I, I really like you know I'm in I'm in the factory every day, and I'm you know all of my product development is hands on, and my sampling is hands on, and then once it gets into actual production you know, pretty much all of the, the troubleshooting has been done, but I mean, it's, it's, you know, the, the difficulty is to wear all the different hats from the marketing and e-commerce and the sales and the developing and sourcing materials and, you know, and all that. And then also being involved in the manufacturing side. But, um, I think that's what sort of keeps me interested is because every area is so different and so challenging that, um, you know, it, it allows me to do a lot of creative stuff, a lot of, you know, there's just different ways of thinking to kind of keep me engaged. Yeah, I love that. I think it's has to be the right personality for that rather than just seeing um, challenges, which they are, but it's, it's engaging, it's interesting, it's, uh, I mean, how much more fun, you know, it, it's it's literally your your baby that you're like when you're working on a new design um 
you know, and if it actually gets to the point where it's on the site available and you're waiting, like you're waiting for that response, you're waiting for that first order, you're waiting for someone, an influencer to be like, oh, you know, I just, you know, uh, got these today and unboxing and, you know, it, it has to be pretty thrilling. No, <laughs> it, it's, it's, it's so, it's so the journey is so personal. So it's, it's sort of, you know, it's, it's my family. So it's, it's just really, it's, it's easy to talk about the business and, and everything else, but when you get into like people buying it or, you know, if we do a sale in New York and people line up and it's just, it's, it's really, it's really tough to kind of understand. I don't, I don't want to understand it because I, I think that, you know, I, I'm just focused on doing more of it because that's what I'm good at. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and, you know, obviously there's, there's a marketing component. I mean, it's not, it's a business at the end of the day, but like, um, yeah, it just, it's, well, this, this is the double you know, side of it, right? You have to sell to pay those wages and to have, you know, keep that family, component alive but yeah i i get it i mean this is why we're having these conversations so i i feel strongly about doing this and hearing these stories is you know i totally get it i'm here i am speaking like i would think i know what you're what you're trying to achieve or what you're about and you know it's it's important for for me to hear like no it's it's not you know about reviews or how many units got sold or you know it's 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 really as you say it's your family it's it's everything tied up in in that Mm -hmm. you know it's just if if i keep my focus obviously there's you know the design element and the material element and all that stuff but if i keep it as authentically made as i can i know that there's nothing more that there's no you know there's even even what we're doing right now, you know, current production, there's no way for me to make something better because I'm trying to do as much as I can within, you know, the four walls of our of our factory. You know, it's more more like a workshop, you know. But so it's you know to to read a review, it's like well, yeah, I I, I put everything in there, so I know that, you know, there's no need to sort of read a review because it like I the I can't, I can't ask somebody if they don't like the brand or what we're about or aesthetically how it looks, that's, that's something that I can't control, but I can at least still win somebody over with the quality and the integrity of the product. And that's all that really matters. And I know that because I have my own manufacturing, I can control that down to everything, you know, like most of the stuff that we put inside our shoes we you know we work directly with all the suppliers and everything custom ordered and you know whether it's nails you know working i get we custom brass nails from japan from a a small uh, small nail factory outside of osaka and you know i mean most shoe factories just buy it from a supplier but you know we go a step further to, to get exactly what we need because that's just what we used before and in order for us to sort of achieve the same level we have to go above and beyond what that is 
to sort of maintain it, whether or not somebody appreciates it or, or whatever. That's not the point of doing it. It's just to, you know, it's just kind of ingrained into the way that I'm, I'm made up and my dad was made up and I guess the, the vision of my, my grandpa. So nice. I, I, I think that's amazing. I just always feel that the pull to cut a corner to, to, you know, would be there. But if you just know your reason, you know, your why, then it doesn't even cross your mind. It's just, this is how a quality boot is made. End of story. And, um, it forms everything after that. I lo- I love that. Um, when you're talking about though, like innovation, and I want to get to where I read on your website about. Um, I'd like you to speak about the stitch down method. Okay. So yeah. I'm curious about that. Is that something that always existed and you've brought back? Or, you know, and and just explain for anyone listening, I like to get a little bit geeky on these shows and actually talk about, you know, construction methods and um, and techniques and, and, you know, what's unique to you. So I think the stitch down is probably pretty significant to you. Yeah, so, I mean, the, the stitch down construction is the the way that it is made by us and there's a few other you know there's like a maybe 10 or i don't know maybe not 10 but there's 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 enough small makers in pacific northwest that make this style and it, it only truly exists in this region of the world um and i mean i don't know historically i don't know like how it how it all sort of came to be. I mean, we, we started to do stitch down late sixties, 1970s. And I think these other guys did the same thing. And it was the idea of where the, the vamp of the shoe, the front of the shoe is, is turned out and stitched down to a full leather midsole, meaning that when you look at the shoe from the side and you can see the leather, that piece of leather goes straight through to the other side. It's not a welt. Right. Um, and then the back half of the shoe is nailed in place. Um, and what that does is it sort of locks the heel in place, but also allows you to sort of have climbing spurs and all sorts of stuff for the purpose of, you know, cutting down a tree or being outside. And the, the, the vamp that is then turned out acts as like weather resistant and wicks the water away from the shoe. And, <laughs> You know, prior to this idea, you could see like a full like Norwegian welt um, stitched down in Europe for like alpine trekking and, and this ty- this type of thing. But they never had it nailed in the back because the purpose wasn't to make it as rigid as you could to stand on a on a peg or something. So that the adaptation of this is you know really kind of taken from the European idea and then made sort of industrial. Um, and I, I, you know, it's, it would be very hard to sort of find a, a vintage stitch down boot from like the, 
you know, the 1940s or 50s. It, it, I, I don't think I've ever seen one because it's just it that sort of concept wasn't thought of yet. Not yeah. that it's truly innovative, but it just sort of combines two different ideas of a fully stitched down product with a nailed down product. That's so yeah. Going going to us, I mean, what what's sort of innovative to where we are today is really just taking this idea of a stitch down product with um, a more formal type of last, like not you know more of a dressed style last, and sort of blending the two together to give you, um, I mean, essentially just more of a commercial look rather than something that has like a logger heel that's meant for climbing spurs and stuff like that and so you know on, on our site we talk about um you know we have like the uh like uspto trade dress from the united states that sort of um acknowledges us as the first first company to market this type of product um which is true but um you know it predates internet and stuff and and essentially what it is is just um it's a stitch down that is is you know more commercial i mean it's it's just low low toe box low profile low heel and this idea at the time didn't exist in the marketplace um yeah so it's it's like a rugged idea mixed with you know more formal looking uh aesthetics Nice. And, and now it's, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of, um, you know, a lot of people are doing it because obviously it's, there's a lot of unique things about it. So there's, there's a lot of makers that are sort of doing a version of that, that, you know, they do a nice, a nice product. So. Yeah. It's, Hey, you can take, you know, a takeaway of when, when other companies start doing something, it's almost a, a nod to them you know it's it's them appreciating hey that's good i'm 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 the first to admit if i like something and i can incorporate it into what i'm doing i am i am borrowing that idea <laughs> you know and it's it's really a you know there's only so many unique ways to build a handmade item right because the manufacturing techniques um you know, although they can vary, you don't have, you know, unlimited variation uh, on something that's traditionally built. Mm -hmm. You know, you know, for me, it's it's the idea really is is like it's stemming from, you know, from value proposition. So if I look at, you know, before making like what what is now our service boot, we had products, and it's very hard for me to relate to the business and then you know post service boot it's much more relatable um and i think that it's you know a lot of a lot of brands that are doing something similar it's like well i i think that it's it's great that they're doing that because it keeps everybody employed but it also makes them it 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 forces them to make better product in the way that it's more detail oriented rather than make it heavier and more rugged. And because there's this idea of, you know, this false 
sense of like quality because it's heavy or because it's something when you know it's not really the case it you know it's the sophistication of it in the you know if it looks simple that means it's very complex and if it's done at a high level you overlook it you don't you overlook the fact that it's that complicated right yeah, yeah. and so to me that's just a value proposition and that's what i'm attracted to and that's sort of why why i do all these products that are very challenging for us to do at a level that is um you know, if I can put a product out that is that is comparable or in quality, but also just in looks, as somebody that has been doing that type of product for a hundred years, then that's a pretty pretty good thing. Like it's you know, it's a pretty good feat that we've accomplished in say the span of you know fourteen years. You know, oh, just yeah. just to be able to get to that level, because you have to remember that you know our heritage is not in finely you know fine looking shoes or boots right so the more that i can make those products get to that level it sort of uh you know it, it just makes all the other product lines that we do get better as well yeah i understand that completely i do yeah so going deeper into um the boot manufacturing or, or footwear manufacturing the one thing that you know I was thinking about earlier today preparing was you know I consider say saddle making to be a trade I consider harness making to be a trade I consider you know boot making shoemaker that's a trade but a lot of people always assume because you do that you must also do all aspects of it and I'm, I'm i'm speaking to the last so is that how unique is that do you have is is that a profession in itself last manufacturing yeah last maker um well there's no last makers in north america but yeah it is i mean um because <clears throat> it's the foundation yeah, it's it's more like I mean, it's, it's like sculpting, you know, I mean, it, it, I think, you know, it'd be very, very hard to find somebody that, that can take literally a block of wood and, and, and like carve it and sculpt it down to a shoe. And, and most last manufacturers that are bigger have guys that are, you know, sculptures, but I, you know, I, I don't know how how far the raw material goes to where the starting point is so if it if it's if it's more of a block that is sort of pre-shaped and then they go from there or is it actually wood with bark on it and they strip it because I, i've never seen that in all of the places that i've ever visited and, and i've been you know all over the world to different last makers and you know i think there's people that can do it but i mean you know, it's, it's, I mean, it's, that's, a, that's like, uh, it's like saying, you know, did, did Michelangelo sculpt this entire block of marble? And it's like, well, I don't think so. He probably has people help him because like, that's just, that's yeah. just the way it works. But I'm just know? saying if, if, when you're so, developing new products, you need to start with a last, like art yeah. and you can only now is I'm just 
trying to get an understanding. Is Alas something that is consumable? Like, does it last a few years? Does it, is it, you know, what kind of, is it just to design a shoe on? Or is, I mean, it's actually formed, the leather is formed around that. Mm-hmm. So. Okay, it, so, yeah, shoe lasts, I mean, traditionally made out of wood, but now the majority is plastic just because the cost of wood, you know, if you have, if the, if a plastic one costs you 20, the wood one might be 80 or 90. So, I mean, you, you could not have a production run of wooden last. It would cost you a fortune. Yeah. Um, so you, you know, you want to make a shoe, you have, you, you have a sketch, you have an idea, you have an existing shoe that you want to take the shape of, you send it to a last maker. They can get fairly close with that from that form that last you then draft the last with tape to get the meeting form to then make the pattern from um there's many ways to make a pattern but you essentially just tape it and draw the 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 center line front and to the heel you can cut it off you can draw the pattern on the tape on the last you can do it flat on on like once once you take the taped piece off you can put it down on paper and you can draw the pattern and, and, you know, obviously this is, it's, there's, it's very, very complex, but essentially that's what they're doing. So the, the last is used for a lot of things because essentially once the pattern is made and the upper is stitched, you then form it and mold it around that shape. And depending on the type of construction will dictate, you know, um, how you've attached it on the bottom could be glue could be a welt could be stitched down slip lasted uh strobo lasted i mean there's there's many or if it's like um you know even even like a a fly knit upper a knitted upper would probably still have a last because it needs to get a sole so you'd have some sort of stiffener that's been knitted into the upper and into the heel you know you flash activate it you slip the last in it hardens to give you rigid a rigid toe and heel and then you mark the sole using like a invisible pen and then you glue it on and it's done <laughs> so there's you know that's essentially how it's done i mean yeah. the, so the last is basically the dna of any shoe company it's you know everybody yeah. every shoe brand has their own um iconic lasts that they have based upon the industry that they were providing and um, all those other things. So if it's a, a work boot company, then it's more of an industrial um, toe shape, less likely to be an almond toe shape. It's something more sophisticated. So it's, it's you know, just depending on what the, what the history has been. Yeah. I just find it fascinating because I, I see it as, uh, and it, if I understand correctly, it is, it's an industry on its own because you know, I don't, you know, I relate everything back to saddles, but, you know, saddles are made on trees traditionally. Well, there's a handful of tree makers globally and, you know, dozens and dozens of saddle makers. So they're, they're all going to one or two, you know, tree makers. I'm generalizing a lot, but basically there's more saddle makers than there is tree makers. And I would imagine there's probably more, uh, 
manufacturers of footwear than there is last makers. I mean, the last makers oh, yeah. are servicing yeah. a huge in, industry. Yeah, there's one one in England. They have one last maker left. Um, you know, Italy's got a bunch, but some of them some of them are pretty big. But it's the same company. Mexico has got like in Leon. This he might be. I don't know, five or six. And there's like two that are pretty big. And of those two, I think they both of them have a satellite location in the US. Um, and then in Dominican Republic and a few other places, the same yeah. Mexican company. But yeah, I mean, it's, but you know, I talk about it like it's, you know, I mean, it, on an aesthetic level, it's toe shape and all this other stuff, but then you get, t you, there's, there's a function to it. It's your foot. It has to function to the foot it has to you know it can't fatigue the foot and i mean there's a million technical things about alas that you know i you know if i you know i i carve a last and i sand a last to, to change it and do all this stuff and if i send it to the last maker to sort of 3d scan it and and then sort of refine the lines and stuff they're also making sure that it actually functions i mean there's things that i just wouldn't think about because it's not my 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 profession but i mean I, to me it's really one of the most important things um of of what makes something unique a shoe unique is the last and then the finishing of it the, the trimming and the sanding and um you know because it's you anybody can last a shoe and you sort of construct it and put a sole on it but then it's the fine detailing of the finishing. I mean, that, that's like a, you know, it's, it's an art. So. Yeah. That's, uh, it's, it's part of it. I knew there was, that's kind of the answer I was expecting, but I was like, I don't have a clue. And it's something that I, I really wanted to share and, and learn more about. So. Cause it, there's a, there's a lot of people that are making shoes and they're, you know, they're, they're not, some of them are nice. Some of them are crude, but you know, of the guys that are making at home as a hobbyist, it's very hard for them to get it, the finishing perfect because it's, they need special equipment or they need, you know, you need to be familiar with, you know, it's very, if you're working with, with leather, it's, there's, you know, if you have familiarity with wood and there's, you know, there's things that you can sort of transfer over with the way that, you know, wood fiber lays, leather fiber would lay, the coloring of it, all that kind of stuff, you know. But, um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, and also like in the finishing, it's the most danger. I mean, if you're sanding something or you're trimming it with, with a trimming machine and you slip off, uh, and you hit the upper, it's garbage. So, yep. you know, it's the single most difficult and complex operation. And, you know, when I see a product that has been trimmed beautifully, it, it's like all I want to do is watch that operator do that task and watch his eyes and watch his hands. And, you know, if there's a feet mechanic to it, then I want to see his feet because I want to understand how he's able to do that and what he's looking at. And if there's anything that I can learn to sort of teach people that are doing it or try to learn it myself to then pass on this stuff to somebody else. Yeah. The, research you know again research i mean spending just you know a good amount of time trolling the internet looking for um uh, to learn more about manufacturing of shoes and you're right like that trimming 
like the, the you can turn you know basically you're you're at the finish line you're almost done the product and one millisecond of lapse of attention and it's garbage <laughs> like yeah. i just yeah, it, you know it happens all the time i mean we we you know as we cross train people and you know just try to sustain the manufacturing component you know there's it it just it's just a byproduct of you know we, we're not large enough where we have a a sample factory or training center or whatever it's just you know you're you're learning on you know if it's shell cordovan and it's a 1500 pair of boots and that's all that you're making then you know then that's what the guy's gonna he's gonna have to you know figure it out and if he doesn't then it then it goes and becomes a second i mean yeah it's just uh, you know life goes on there's not much you can do well and as a as um as a business you have to accept yeah but you know as someone's learning their skill um that that is going to happen and you, you and and learning um I found the higher end product that I've worked on. Um, you just are more careful and you do pay more attention, I think. And it's, you might as well train on that stuff. Like don't train on cheap stuff where the stakes aren't high. I just, I, I don't know, maybe that's maybe how I'm wired, but I would, you know, I, I still to this day, like the higher the stakes, the higher the, you know, not it's not just the dollar value. It's just you're working with the nicest, finest materials, and you mm-hmm. you just sense it. You just feel it. It's uh, and you you just are more switched on. I think it's um, inherent. Like it's a human uh, response. I think. Yeah, I, you know, for it also. I mean, that relates sort of to my logic of just making product and using the best materials that you can get. Um it it's a lot easier to be at the top and then you know take something away to make it more affordable i think if you if you don't run that thing through your nervous system where it's like super expensive and and you don't understand the feel of it in terms of just the product or the material it's very hard to go up up the food chain and sort of understand that like if this is 500 and if i use that it's a thousand then i think it's it's just such a jump for somebody. It's just, it's very, very hard. So I, yeah. I, you, you'd be better to go higher and then come back down. Sure. You know, because once you sort of understand what the upper limit is, maybe you don't actually need it anyways. So. But I think it travels through the whole food chain of your business too. Like as you're, like you're talking about, you know, nails, you probably put as much thought and energy and, discussion and and time with that manufacturer of nails as you do on one of the key components whether it's cordovan or um, soles you know or even maybe components that people don't see that are buried inside mm-hmm. um, but when you're when your whole supply chain is high-end you know that that tannery feels the same way about their product because that hide they're selling to you is their finished product that you're then turning into your finished product right so it does trickle down i think that whole energy of 
the best mm-hmm. of the best being made by the best or you know that that the attitude is we are making quality with quality you know and it's i'm sure even people who you know bake or i don't care what you do whether it's carving you know simple items or anything the 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 better the raw material um it's it's just a different vibe yeah yeah i think you're right i mean but it also you know if that's not your market then then that's not your market you know i mean it's just uh fortunately um you know the you know luckily we have skilled workers that's number one but i mean it's just a byproduct of where you're making it and you know cost of living and i mean there's, there's many things that make it expensive so i think it's just um but yeah you're right it's just there's a you know through your suppliers of of your material there's a sort of everybody's sort of all on the same level and sort of understands why people are doing what they're doing um and uh you know there's a level of respect for that knowing the complexity you know you might not understand somebody's business or or their production processes fully but you can still respect it because you know it's as hard as what you're doing so yeah 100 percent um i i feel we have to touch on it but you know as far as recruiting retention of of staff training i mean i'm sure you have people who've probably been with you for for decades but how do you how do you handle retirement you know succession of that you know how do you Um, well i mean as of right now i don't my i've got a guy well my my dad is doing a couple maybe a couple half days a week ish uh and that's only because i needed to bring him back uh but other than him um i've got a guy that's in finishing that was actually doing like outsole stitching and stuff. And then, um, he was going to retire and we, he, we moved him into a different, different area part-time and he, 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 so, uh, you know, obviously my dad's been doing it for like 50 years, but other than him, um, this other guy, he's probably at least 20 years, but he's, I mean, he's, he's part-time and, uh, I would say that our, you know, we're right now the longest employees maybe, 10 to 12 years it's not i mean it's it's substantial but it's not uh you know it's not not um huge because you know i've that's the one thing that i've had to solve is the succession of the manufacturing and and unfortunately it wasn't wasn't in place when i sort of took over so it's been a huge hurdle to sort of problem solve and um you know, a lot of headaches, but the main takeaway is that, you know, I'm able to get the product to where I want it to be in, you know, and the business structure where, where it should be in 2023. Um, Whereas before it was a lot of, you know, I had, I had ideas and, you know, relating to product, but not necessarily had the full support of manufacturing because, you know, my dad might not have agreed or whatever. So that trickle down effect was there. And now, now that it's not there, 
you know, the responsibility to figure it out is there, but I also have full support of the entire team to, you know, if, if I need to lean on them for troubleshooting, I can otherwise, um, you know, just try to try to figure it out. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, it, it's really tough. I mean, you're not gonna, the chances of finding somebody that can like plug and play is, is, you know, one in a million or more. I mean, it's just, it just doesn't exist Yeah. in terms of like upper stitching and, you know, and actually closing a shoe. Um, there's a lot more related industries of garment sewing and other stuff that, you know, sewing material and fabric is different than leather, but the actual mechanics of it is the same. So, you know, it doesn't mean that it's going to transcend over to the other, but at least they understand operationally the machine and functionally how it works. But if you've got somebody that is trying to stitch the outsole on or to welt stitch, I mean, there's nothing, there's nothing that's comparable. So. Yeah. Again, that finding someone that has the aptitude for it, but also the desire to do it. That's uh, the, the trick, right? Is, you know, cause it's not impossible to teach someone with the aptitude for it, but it's, um, I find with saddlery, you know, the first time they stab their hand with an awl or an injury or a repetitive strain injury or, and you just, you're like, that's what this job is. Like, if this is bothering you, then yeah, you're probably, you might have the aptitude, but you certainly don't have the the drive to just suck it up and, you know, work through it. So it's, it's, it's hard. It's a combination. You're, you're looking to win the lottery a little bit to find someone who's willing to um, learn, but also tolerate the downsides of, of certain aspects of, of working with your hands. Yeah. And, and, you know, even, even doing like, you know, if you're working, you have a small workshop or if it's even, it's just you, I mean, it's repetitive. So it's, it's just, I mean, that's just the nature of what it is. So, I mean, it's, it's one thing to want to learn every operation, but you know, it's just, that's like a, it's like a 50 year swing to do all that. I mean, it's just not, it's not something that somebody can pick up and, and do, you know, and yeah. And so I think there's, it's just the challenges. It's, it's a lot of it's repetitive and, you know, you've got to create a nice environment for everyone and a good workplace and good benefits. And I mean, it, there's a lot of things that, you know, in order to retain them, it doesn't even relate to the job itself. If it's just, if it's a great place to work, then, you know, they're, they're willing to sort of be there and learn and, and give you more than the other person. So. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny. I enjoy the repetitive side of things because it's, I find it calming or I'm not sure how to describe it. I keep saying that I enjoy the repetitiveness and it ends up making me sound like I'm simple, but it's because there's a joy in having perfected it and it's become easy even though it's not, but it's, it's, you just know the task and the joy in it is this, the, you know, the finished product or, you know, but it's also, um, you know, 
I don't know, as someone who does Tai Chi every day, if they mind repetitive, <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it, it's, it's, it can be soothing. It, 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 it's a repetitive task, but the idea is that you, you enter a flow state and it's, it's creative. I mean, you're making, it's art. I mean, you're making something and you're creating something and, yeah. you know, it's not, you're using a natural material. So, you know, just to think that it's repetitive and, and sort of brain dead in a way uh, is just not the case because every skin and every piece is different and it yeah. will react differently, which is challenging. You know? Yeah. But I, I mean, the beauty of the, of, of the skill, I mean, it's like a bespoke shoemaker doing everything by hand is, is repetitive, but you know, obviously they're serving a client and there's, there's elements that are different, but at the end of the day, that the physical tasks in the, you know, the steps that they take are in the same order as they always are, because that's what works. But the beauty is in the doing of it, you know? And I think, um, I think that idea is sort of lost on a lot of people because, you know, um, whether they, they just, they're too, too easily distracted or they can't hold their attention or, you know, but it, it's, it's the same thing about somebody working in a, a coffee shop that makes a beautiful latte or, you know, all these, all this coffee art stuff. I mean, it, it's phenomenal what they can do. I mean, it's, it's beautiful. And the fact that they, you know, they've taken this simple task and sort of made it engaging to them is, is, is a good thing. Yeah, I, I agree a hundred percent. All right. Now I'm going to start winding things down because I, we're getting into this territory where I can talk about every oh, yeah. single minutia of the thing. And I, I kind of feel like, um, you know, it's important that, um, you know, we kind of met the maker and, and kind of peek behind the curtain a little bit. And, you know, I, you know, for me, it was important to, to learn a few, few key things. Um, before we go and wrap things up, I'm sure, you know, is there, is there something that you feel is important that an average consumer might want to know, or most importantly, like, well, you know, this podcast is, I don't think real end users. There might be some some Viber, you know, geeks out there who are just loving this. But I, you know, I I want other makers, other craftspeople to be to be having a takeaway. Going, yeah, you know, and we all suffer from some kind of imposter syndrome or uh, that you think you're alone you know, in, in something you're struggling with or whatever. So, you know, this is kind of this platform here. If there's something you're like, you know what, I want to share as much as possible with everyone is, is X. Is there something like that? Um, I don't know. Yeah. I, I don't know. You know, I mean, I, it, it's just, um, to me, the maybe, fear I have yeah. is that, you know, this podcast is supposed to be, um, celebrating the leather trades and the beauty of leather and, and the people that do it. and But I also think it's important to say, yeah, it's not easy. It's hard to learn. It's hard to find people to learn from who want to share. Um, but I just think, you know, at the end of the day, I think, you know, your passion and commitment just kind of speaks volumes that, you know, maybe someone out there listening, thinking, 
you know, I'm in college or university, and as I say, I think of the, you know, a lot of people who are in the arts end up in this working with leather because they they kind of get the creative process. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's I think maybe you've already done a beautiful job of explaining, you know, a day in the life of. But um, I always like to give people an opportunity to just well, you know, yeah. I mean, I, I think it's just you know when doing any kind of work, you know, like this is, I mean, I'm, I'm just doing it. I mean, obviously I have my own, like my own mission of what I'm trying to do, but it's like, it's, I'm doing it for myself. And it's like, if, if, you know, I, it's very hard to show somebody something because they will never get as excited as, as I would about it, about accomplishing something, some small detail or whatever that is. And, and so it's, it's like, it, it, if the work is able to fulfill that and you don't really necessarily need, you know, um, to be rewarded by, you know, somebody telling you that it's good or whatever, because it, you know, it's, it's just an arbitrary opinion from somebody that, you know, may know you or not, but, I think it's just everybody. Everybody's perspective is going to be different, so you can't you can't please everybody. And so I think you know you just need to focus on smallest, smallest viable audience, and you know and find out who those guys are, and just sort of um, you know share and educate and, and you know challenge challenge the craft to be better at what it is you're trying to do. And you know I mean it's. Um, if, if I didn't have the business, I, I still have generational ties to shoemaking beyond the, you know, the 90, 90 year old business. But I, I would still make stuff even if I couldn't show people just because it's just part of who I am and yeah. like knowing that I can do it, you know, and I think, you know, when you're talking, we were talking earlier and, you know, just talking about the process of you know why I do what I'm doing and it you know I'm I'm doing a lot of things just to prove that it can be done in a modern day with old techniques and it and it, I mean and I'm only making shoes it's not like it's not it's not brain brain surgery I mean it's just shoemaking but it's just a it's just the fact that I care enough to sort of slow things down and try to honor some of the things that are not around anymore and taking a, you know, industrial, you know, now an industrial business and a scaled business and sort of saying, look, you can still, you can still put these things back into action in an, in an industrial scale, like it was done back then, but you just need to have, you just need to want to do it. And it's, it's just better value for the customer. I mean, it costs a bit more money, but it's not, at the end of the day, it's not that much more, you know. So, but, you know, one of the beautiful things that you see now is there's a lot of these startup companies that are doing Goodyear welted shoes, but, you know, huge volume, like gigantic volume. And, you know, people are, they look at it, it's like 200 bucks and it's like, well, it's a piece of shit. It's like, well, it's not really a piece of shit. The factory that made it is probably amazing. It's just that the customer is asking for something of a price point that reduces the quality of the footwear, but the skill level is significantly high. 
if not higher than what I have in my own facility, because they're making, you know, 30 times that I make or more, probably more, but you know, so the, the skill level is there. There's just a, people are too, too, you know, uh, surface on it. They're not actually looking behind the curtain. So, but yeah. anyways, my point was with these companies that are doing the rigid wealth products, the beauty is that they're, they are in and of themselves educating people on high quality shoes that could be repaired and, you know, and resold and, you know, and it's like, if you, if everybody put on their pair of shoes and was like, what, what, what's the longevity of this? And what is the, um, you know, if it's, if it's a thousand dollars and you amortize that over 15 years, what does it actually cost you versus a pair of Converse that you paid 60 bucks for that die in one year? I mean, what, what is the cost difference here? Right. Cause you yep. can actually repair it. And if it's 15 years old, maybe somebody wants to buy it from you or maybe you give it to somebody, you know? And it's the one thing I noticed with, especially, um, uh, say the service boot is, yeah, the vintage or secondhand market is, it seems to be alive and well, which is pretty cool that you could wear something for as long as you wanted to, you're choosing to let them go because you moving on, to different style or fashion or or whatever the reason but yeah you can actually still get um money for something that you've you know you don't see um the mass-produced whatever um uh, being sold secondhand um because they just don't have that that value they don't retain uh, value they're they're dropped off at value village or or whatever charitable shop um you know, and just given away, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it when I when I look at what I do in the, the business in, in footwear in general is, it's like, and it relates to sort of what you said about the used market. And you know, you can buy it used. You can change the sole. You can change the hardware, and it's totally different. And and it's because it's traditionally made. Yeah. But it, to me, it resonates with with the automotive. You know, and you've got the base model and then you've got all these different options and then you've got an aftermarket, you know, business with it. And, but it's all based upon one single style and you can, you can dress it up or dress it down. You can change the wheels and you can add a body kit. I mean, all of these things are relatable to, to shoot traditionally made shoes because the idea is that there is a foundational chassis to the shoe that is in effect like the frame that you can, build on and, and take apart and put back together. And, you know, and so that's, that's where my head goes all the time and how I look at what we do and product lines and everything else. It's sort of that, that idea. And especially when people are, you know, in, in the used market, you look at something and you're like, well, if you just change the soul, it's like, it's totally different. And maybe the person that is selling it doesn't necessarily realize for, a hundred bucks, they can change out the sole to, you know, a wedge sole or something different. And all of a sudden it might serve the purpose that he's looking for. Yeah. Again, just being educated on, on the product you have or like the footwear you have and saying, okay, you know, what is it? What, what are you unhappy with about it now? And, um, yeah, for the sake of swapping out a sole. Yeah. That's, mm-hmm. 
yeah, it's very, uh, very similar to the, to the saddle industry. I think what you just said there for sure. Well, Brett, I want to thank you so much for sharing all of your, you know, your history and, you know, it's very personal. So I, I appreciate that, uh, you know, you're willing to share it and, you know, I don't want this, you know, platform to be just like a marketing tool for someone. You've actually come on and shared, um, you know, some, some things that are, you know, well behind the curtain. And I, I really appreciate your openness. Yeah, sure. No problem at all. Enjoy. Always enjoy talking about, you know, the business and different, different sides to it. So. Awesome. Well, thank you again. Thank you very much. Appreciate it and all the success in the future. Thank you very much. I'm Brett Viberg from Viberg Boot Manufacturing in Victoria, Canada. I'm third generation shoemaker. You can check out our website at www.viberg.com. I had a fantastic time with Christian on the Saddler's Post. amazing conversations and would love to do it again. This has been the Saddler's Post with Christian Lowe. Thank you for listening. The Saddler's Post is sponsored by Christian Lowe Leather Care. Visit christianlow.ca